Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Amy Hazeltine, the Deputy Chief Information Officer for Enterprise Services at the Department of Health and Human Services. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time today. Great to be with you. Thank you. So the reason why we're talking goes back to FITARA, the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act. This tags back to a hearing a couple months ago where uh, HHS was one of those agencies that not only testified, but had wonderful news about the experience with FITARA and the really the progress you guys are making. And a lot of the FITARA scores, as we look back at, at the most recent scorecard from the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, is you guys got a lot of A's and a lot of B's. So let's just start at the beginning. FITARA scores improved. Discuss how you guys are able to go from, I think if I remember, a lot of D pluses and C minuses and C pluses up into the B's and the A's. Talk about that, that those efforts. The Department of Health and Human Services back in May of 2017 uh, was sporting a D, D minus in and across our FATARA scores. We actually used that experience in our testimony on the Hill as an opportunity. It's sometimes difficult when you are faced with such challenge to look at the challenge as an opportunity, but we at the department did in fact do that exact thing. We examined the law and we began to reflect upon the import of the FATARA legislation in terms of how it can and should drive real change, strong and effective management across the IT portfolio, all with the intention of fostering mission and really supporting the business activities within the department to operate in the most effective and efficient manner possible. From that moment where we saw the greatest opportunity provided by the FATARA scorecard and the D-, we explored and developed a brand new strategy to tackle FATARA in a way that would not only be resonating with people who do not necessarily do technology, but would be relevant for our business, relevant for our mission, and relevant to drive outcomes uh, across the space of the HHS portfolio. Our approach focused on something we ended up calling D3. The D3 model focused on three different specific elements. The first, the importance of dialogue. FATARA as the law speaks to the importance of collaboration across multiple C-suite portfolios in any organization, whether it's the chief financial officer, the chief acquisition officer, the chief information officer, or the chief operating officer. And with that collaboration, we believed needed to come dialogue at all levels of the organization, from our senior policy leadership who supported and encouraged our work, to our IT staff and to our technologists across not only at the headquarters level, but our operating divisions, to our financial analysts, to our acquisition analysts, all of us working in a collaborative effort to understand how we could best manage our IT portfolio in a way that was transparent, accountable, and drove results. The dialogue was one critical facet. The next was to recognize the importance of data. Certainly across the IT portfolio, we are collectors of large swaths of data, of large pieces of information. We wanted to understand in the context of the FATARA scorecard, what data would actually be most appropriate to help us tell the HHS story, particularly in the context of the critical metrics that are driven by the FATARA scorecard. How could we use data to talk about the, and understand the importance of risk as it relates to an IT project? How could we use data to drive the importance of identifying opportunities for cost avoidance, cost savings? 
How could we use data to encourage the totality of our workforce to really understand the importance of taking IT principles, project management principles to heart and executing those? So data was the second key portion of our strategy. The last was this notion of being able to deliver real change. So it's all fine and well to have an interesting strategy and have a lot of great dialogue and a lot of interesting conversations. And it certainly is exciting to be able to leverage data to describe the work you're doing. But all of that has to go towards something that is real, that is measurable, and that can demonstrate value. So we used the data and the dialogue to help us deliver real change, not only in terms of meeting the metrics themselves, but in terms of actually showing how the accumulation of that data could help us make better decisions and help us drive better efficiencies and greater outcomes for the organization. So that was really the fundamental strategy we employed. We did that through partnerships with our senior leadership, through partners with our chief financial officer community, through partners with the chief acquisition officers community, and then in particular, through partnerships with our colleagues at GAO, as well as at the Office of Management and budget. We used the no blame, no shame monologue as we were working through these to say, let's talk through the challenges, let's identify the opportunities, and let's work towards solutions. And then finally, we used techniques such as internal scorecards and roadshows to help make sure that the message of Fitara was resonating with our customers and our clients and was relevant to their day-to-day work. All right. So there's a lot to unpack there. And it's a great explanation of how you did it. And I remember in the testimony from back in, uh, I guess, December timeframe, you, you guys talked about the D3 model. So let's start at the first piece of the D3. And, and this is obviously the collaboration piece. HHS was known for, for a while as because of the federation, because you have so many different pieces of parts, it was difficult to get that collaboration going. People could march in a direction, but not always maybe the same direction, where sometimes you could get two steps, but then you take a half a step back. How did you get not just the components, but the CFO and the CAO and the Chico and and, and the like to really kind of understand that FATAR is not an IT law, but is a agency law? So one of the comments that our acting chief information officer, Ed Simcox, made during the course of the hearing was that for HHS, FATAR is not just a law, it's a lifestyle. And I think uh, that that tagline is really reflective of the way in which we approached establishing that collaborative dialogue. So I would say we did five key things. The first is that as a general part of our routine monthly discussions with our chief information officers, we put FATARA on the agenda, not just the metrics themselves, but the goals that we needed to set in order to demonstrate and really deliver on the HHS story. So we made it a routine part of the dialogue on an everyday basis so that by the time we met with a CIO, we weren't talking about a bunch of other policies or initiatives, we started first with Fatara. We talked about how Fatara could help us drive results. And then we talked about the other projects in the construct of making that IT portfolio really sing, making sure that we managed it and, and provided the appropriate degree of oversight and compliance. So that's the first way we did it. The second is that we recognized, and, and candidly, this is a mantra that I have shared with my staff here at HHS for many, many, many months. Um, if we can't speak about the import of FATARA in a way that is relevant and resonates with people who do not do technology, then we have not done our job and been true to the 
fundamental message of that law. So in order to do that, we made sure that we spoke with other types of governance communities. Our CFO community has routine meetings. We made it a point to get invited to that conversation and then to find opportunities to continue that conversation with the CFOs. We made it a point to ensure that our chief acquisition officers, that the community as well as the individuals that were at the staff level understood what FATARA was and why it was important. And then we looked to other communities that actually were adjacent to CFO, CAO, such as our executive officer community, and routinely briefed them on what it was, why it was important, how it mattered, and how it would benefit their particular portfolios and their particular business opportunities. And so through that, we also then employed the scorecard. And the scorecard in and of itself was an internal document that helped provide transparency and accountability for how every single organization across HHS was faring. We shared those results internally with every single optive. So one optive knew how they were faring as compared to another, as compared to another. We used the roadshows to buttress and ensure that while we were holding them accountable for the metrics, we were also providing them with technical analytics support to help them get there. And then when we met with the other groups, we would share that exact same scorecard. So there was full transparency across the department and across multiple communities on what we were aiming for, why we were doing it, why it mattered, and why it would ultimately be helpful to them. I think that's a huge key is to get in front of those communities because it's one thing to talk to the CFO and then hope that that CFO passes it down to the deputy who passes it down to the budget analyst. But by getting in front of those meetings, how difficult was it to, for instance, get in front of the CFO community? Was there a little bit of arm twisting, for lack of a better word, or did they get the understanding right off the bat? The CFO was like, yes, we are partners. You come whenever you want type thing. In HHS, we're very lucky to have a CFO community that has been tremendous partners uh, on FATAR, actually since the initial implementation plan was designed. Um, When that first came, when the law was first passed, both our Office of the Assistant Secretary for Administration and our Office of the Assistant Secretary for Financial Resources knew straight off the bat that there needed to be a collaboration between those two large organizations. Since that point in time, our uh, CFO community and our CIO community have partnered on a number of different initiatives, including our IT annual budget reviews. This was just yet another extension of that existing partnership. I would say the other piece of this is is that when you are living in the world of data, data is objective. Data creates a platform on which to have a conversation. It's not about you or me. It's about what does the data tell you and what is the story. What ended up happening is that the data became the facilitator of the conversation, we ended up getting asked about it more than we had to go find an invitation to go speak. People wanted to hear about it. They wanted to understand it. And our job was simply to talk through that with them in a partnership fashion. I think that's a great point because it's the data that, again, we've heard this before, maybe sets you free because once you can bring someone the data and says, listen, we have 10 different learning management systems. That's what we're paying for. We're paying for 10 of them. Help me, you know, you talk to the Chico's reduce the number to one or two or three, whatever the proper number is, but we have to get lower. Is that the other piece of this is that once you could start showing the data to the the other communities, they got the potential and, and, and real benefits? 
I think that's absolutely correct. I think the data um, provided two things. One is it flagged areas where there was perhaps unspoken discord or a lack of understanding about what the law intended or what even the metrics were. And so the data gave us an ability to help teach and ensure that there was both um, technical as well as philosophical understanding as to what we were doing and why we were doing it. Um, the data also helped us understand where we as a CIO community needed to do a better job of articulating why the policy was in place in, uh, initially. And it allowed us to, frankly, leverage some brain power that was not explicitly in the CIO community. It would allowed us to engage our program people because the more we understand understand what they are doing, the better we can understand how to help technology make their mission happen. And so the data really became a driver of very interdisciplinary conversations with people whom I think heretofore may not have even known what FATARA stood for, let alone why it was important and the value that it could provide. All right. There's so much more I want to ask you about data, but first we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump into uh, where you found your data and, and how good the data was and questions like that. My guest is Amy Hazeltine, the Deputy CIO for Enterprise Services at the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Amy Hazeltine the Deputy CIO for Enterprise Services at the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, Amy, before break, you went through the 3D process to really change how HHS looked at FATARA, the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act. We got through the first D, which was dialogue. Now we're going to move to the second D, which is data. And one of the big concerns that I hear from other CIOs and other people in government is the data itself. Is it clean? Is it dirty? How good the data is? How can we make decisions off of bad data? Where did HHS start when it came to using your data to start to make some decisions, to start to really influence the broader HHS community? The importance of data um, really was one of the key drivers to help us make progress and achieve our current uh, scores across the FATARA scorecard. So I think it's probably true government-wide, and I can certainly say it is true at HHS, um, we are not lacking in data. The question, as you rightly posed, is, is the data sufficient? Is it reliable, repeatable? Uh, is it comprehensive? And, and how do you establish appropriate uh, quality control and, and understanding of the context that surrounds the data? So at HHS, we had already in place a number of processes to gather information through integrated data calls on a quarterly basis to help us tell the FATARA story and in particular um, address some of the key metrics that were articulated by the scorecard itself. The shift came in two ways. The first was that we took a deep breath at the very, very beginning of the D3 strategy and the D3 process, and we read the law. And we read the law not once or twice, but many, many, many times. Um, and we read it many, many, many times so that we would really make sure we understood not just what the law was prescribing that we do, but we read it so that we would understand the real intent of the law. What were lawmakers looking for when they put these words on paper when it passed. And then we actually went and talked with the General Accountability Office and asked that same question. As GAO was working with our congressional colleagues to derive the scorecard and set the uh, quantitative 
expectations for the scorecard, we wanted to understand what was the reasoning behind that. And we used that second conversation, which was really the D part as well. So beyond the internal dialogue, that partnership with the General Accountability Office and with OMB was vital to helping us determine the path forward on the data. Because once we understood the fundamental nature of what the law was telling us, and we understood the way in which the metrics were established from the General Accountability Office's perspective, and how those targets were established in cooperation with GAO and OMB, we were then able to take our regular data call process and frame that with the appropriate context of here's what people are really looking for. Don't just send X over the net, because what we're really looking for is Y. So we added context to the data call. And then, in addition, we not only shared the data with the collective CIO community, so everybody saw everybody else's data, but we established checkpoints on a biweekly basis with our CIOs to say, here's what you're sharing with us, here's what your community, here's what your staff are sharing with us. Does the data that you see on this scorecard resonate with you? Does it look right? Does it not look right? If we had any question or concern raised by a CEO, we met with them and we instituted the no shame, no blame conversation. The point was less about whether they turned it in on time, whether or not it was comprehensive. The point was, does the data reflect what you think you sent and does it reflect the quality that you expect it to show? Because once we had their buy-in and we knew that they knew that we were not trying to compliance them to death, so to speak, but more trying to collaborate with them, the dialogue really shifted from I'm just sending my data to you to I think I'm going to send you this. Does this data work for you? Does it make sense? Do you understand the data that I'm sending? And we ended up having a broader conversation, not just about the holistic nature of the data itself, but about the story that the data told. We then finally engaged other communities to help us see that data in the right light. So when we were thinking about, for example, collecting data on the software inventory, um, we didn't just talk to our IT people. We talked to our acquisition people. We talked to our COOs. We talked to our enterprise architecture community. We talked to our negotiators so that what we were capturing really reflected the work they thought they were doing. So it was expanding the conversation. It was ensuring that the data was presented both to our clients and we received the dialogue with them to understand the context. And then finally, we fostered a degree of transparency around that data so other people could see it and we could ensure we had the best quality possible. One of the things that, as you went through that, stands out to me is this idea of of the no shame, no blame. And you mentioned that earlier. That conversation can be hard because a lot of people get defensive. A lot of people will say, well, I didn't do that, or that's not my fault, or the, the system is, is the problem. How did you have those conversations so people weren't defensive and they were saying, okay, if I can fix this problem, whatever the problem is, or this challenge, overcome this challenge, things will be better, not just for me, but for everybody? I think that is a really tough nut to crack um, because I think, frankly, the most important step toward changing that dynamic is by walking the talk yourself, which means that when you have a concern raised by a colleague, by a CIO, um, you have to take that concern seriously and you have to be willing to admit if perhaps you are not 100% correct. 
So one of the first ways we did it was by sharing the data with our colleagues and then asking for them to weigh in. We gave them basically a 24-hour zone. Um, I kind of think of it like football where you, the CIO is the coach and they get to throw the challenge flag. And if they did uh, raise a concern, raise a question, um, we obviously had to continue the process, but we stopped the conversation long enough to get them on the phone invite them to get any colleagues they wanted on the phone, and then we literally worked through the analytics with them on the line. They saw our willingness to acknowledge where we may not have understood something. We did that and demonstrated that willingness again and again and again, and eventually we ended up in a place where they would call us ahead of time and say, hey, Amy, I'm getting ready to send X over the net. I know there's a couple areas I need to take some extra look at. I want you to know I'm looking at them. Please let us know right before you hit any buttons to push it forward because we want to make sure we're giving you the best thing we've got. And it changed the dynamic such that they wanted to demonstrate their own facility and their own rigor around their own information. Um, And then, frankly, the last piece was when we had uh, good deeds take place, we shouted them from the rooftops. When an optive came forward and said, hey, I missed this piece, but I've now figured it out. We shared those best practices with our CIO colleagues and with other colleagues and with their bosses. So even at the highest levels of HHS, folks would understand how hard individuals were working to deliver the highest quality product possible. One of the other things about the data piece is the working with not just internally the and the components, but you also worked with GAO, you worked with OMB, and I think a lot of times that gets that gets a few overlooked about the importance of talking to GAO, talking to the Inspector General community, talking with OMB about, hey, here's the path we're going down. Does that make sense to you? Oh, it doesn't. Tell me why. Yep. Okay, let's go back and forth. How did those conversations go? Because a lot of times people are a little you know hesitant to to reach out to the auditor community. I totally appreciate that degree of hesitancy. I think, quite frankly, when we came out of that May 2017 hearing, um, the opportunity that was presented to us was so vast that uh, we would have been foolish not to engage with the people who were actually doing the grades. And so we called GAO and we talked with our examiner and we basically said, hey, uh, we've got some room to grow and room to improve here. Would you be willing to collaborate with us on a regular basis? And the answer was, yes, we'd be thrilled. Nobody's really asked us. (laughs) And so we did. And it became an incredible opportunity for both both partners. I think GAO, uh, if you were to ask them, I think they would say that they learned a lot about how hard it is to sometimes do these kinds of initiatives to execute them appropriately. I think they learned that we were serious about uh, getting the work done, getting it done right, and getting it done in a way that it really mattered for our department. I think the partnership that we also fostered between GAO and OMB helped both of those entities see how their own lens or view on FITARA might differ in some occasions. And then we talked through with both of them how we as a department have to navigate that. I think finally, we tried to put ourselves in the role of what it must be like for a GAO auditor to look on all of these different scorecards and and try to discern um, what the data meant and and how they would have to evaluate that. And we wanted to be able to operate in almost an empathetic fashion so that if our particular examiner was asked a question, that that examiner understood 
what we were doing, why we were doing it, and why it mattered, and didn't have to come and search for more answers from us. We wanted them to be almost empowered to be an, an articulate advocate for the work. And that partnership with both GAO and with OMB was extraordinarily beneficial, not only in guiding us, but ultimately in helping us make sure that we stayed on track and really, again, to meet the mission as articulated by the law. So many times agencies are hesitant to meet with GAO or meet with their auditors. It's really nice to hear that when GAO was kind of like, yeah, nobody's asked us before. It seems so simple, doesn't it? And the fact that all you have to do is just say, hey, can I have some help? And it's like, yeah, sure. We're happy to help you. We're happy to, happy to make sure you guys can get better because they realize, I mean, it's their job to realize, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats type thing. I think so. I think, you know, different organizations across government certainly have different relationships with partners at GEO and partners at OMB. I think in the case of HHS, we realized that we had a lot of opportunity to grow and develop, uh, and we could only have been better served by understanding the vantage points of those two sets of colleagues. The worst they were going to say is you're not doing it right, um, but that was valuable information in and of itself. And frankly, if we didn't know if we were going in the wrong direction, we might have kept going in the wrong direction, and nobody really would have benefited from that. So we viewed it as an opportunistic moment, as a teaching moment, um, and one that we are continuing as we go forward. Roughly how often did you meet with GAO and or OMB? Was it weekly? Was it monthly? We had a cadence approximately monthly with GAO, uh, and then with OMB, it was in the range of uh, monthly, bi-monthly, depending upon schedules. Um, as we approached the scorecard for May of 18, we increased that cadence just to make sure we weren't missing anything as we approached the cadence uh, for the November scorecard. Again, we stepped up the dialogue just to make sure that we were meeting the mail and there wasn't anything we were missing. Um, I would say in the case of GAO 2, the one thing I would note is that within the department, we developed what I would call a briefing or evidence book um, such that every single uh, artifact that we think or we thought could have been needed by our colleagues at GEO, we had it easily and readily available should there be questions about the methodology or the deliverables uh, that we at HHS were articulating as our results. So that, I think, too, was helpful for them to know that we had the backup ready to go if they needed it. And even though you guys have a fair amount of success now under FATAR, are you still meeting at least, if not monthly, every six weeks, every eight weeks? Do you still have that regular cadence of some sort? Yes. So we have established certainly a cadence for our meetings with GAO. We have a cadence as well with our colleagues at OMB. Um, we are working toward expanding that partnership to include the cyber community at GAO and the cyber community at OMB. Our uh, acting CISO is actively engaged uh, with the cyber community at OMB, um, and we've had a number of dialogues on a multitude of issues uh, with GAO on the cyber side as well. But specific to VITAR, we're trying to make sure that in alignment with the dialogue uh, construct from round one, uh, that we are expanding the tent, if you will. Um, I often say VITAR is a game the whole family can play, and I think that is certainly true as we move into the broader set of metrics. Um, and I think 
that the dialogue with GAO and with OMB is one that will continue to be fruitful and constructive for the department. All right, good news. And let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can get into the third part of the, the D3 strategy. My guest is Amy Hazeltine, the Deputy CIO for Enterprise Services at the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest, Amy Hazeltine, the Deputy CIO for Enterprise Services at the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, Amy, before break, we got through the second D of the D3 strategy, data. Let's go into the third part of D3, which is delivery of services. How has all this really helped HHS be better about how you guys deliver services, both internally and externally? So I think the great challenge with FITARA and certainly the great challenge we faced at the front end of the D3 model in doing all the dialogue was how could we convince people that the philosophy behind FITARA, the metrics that guided FITARA, were all done under the auspices of delivering real change, greater degrees of effectiveness and efficiency across the portfolio. And as we formulated the strategy, we knew that we needed to find instances and real moments where we could show value and we could show improvement uh, in people's day-to-day activities as a result of the work that we were doing and as a result of the vision that we had set for the broader department. So I think off the top, there are probably three immediate results that come to my mind that I think have resonated and provided a platform for change going forward. Uh, The first is that the TARA scorecard required us under the auspices of the Megabyte Act to pull together a software inventory. So at the time that we began the D3 initiative, HHS did not have a comprehensive software inventory across the department. We were challenged to pull that together, certainly because of the data that was necessitated across the entirety of the department. Um, We were challenged to pull that together because folks are not always super interested in sharing how many licenses of X or Y or Z they happen to have. And we were challenged, frankly, to think of a way to actually literally collect it all. But in working through the FATARA D3 process, certainly the dialogue about why that was important, the data to show what we did have and, and help create some transparency about it. What we found was that by pulling together the department's very first uh, software license inventory was that that data was actually needed and now utilized not only by our CIO community, but by our acquisition community to better understand what is the financial footprint we have across the multitude of software technologies. By understanding that, you are better informed and even empowered to make decisions about what makes the most sense technically for your portfolio, what software is going to help you drive your mission. And by having that software inventory, we were able to show that as a product of there was real tangible business benefit. And in doing that, it has helped us garnered that level of cross-community support so that we continue that work going forward. It also helped us understand where we had further opportunities to grow and develop, um, better understanding where we have legacy technology present across the enterprise and across our portfolio. Without the software license inventory exercise and without that as a product of that exercise, we would not be in the position we are today 
to better understand the portfolio and to better manage it. I think the second example would be the understanding of risk and how risk is associated and affiliated with IT projects. We used Vitara to change the conversation about risk, to acknowledge that you can have an outstanding project manager, you can have a project that is on schedule, within scope, within budget, but it still is a project because of complexity or impact on the public or impact on the business portfolio that has some inherent risk affiliated with it. And that it's not a bad thing actually to acknowledge risk. It actually is an incredible management tool to not only understand the risk, but to talk about the risk and then to have a strategy that helps you actually mitigate the risk. That too was a very concrete cultural shift as a result of Fatara. I think finally, we found that through this entire exercise, it showed the opportunity that is present when the CIOs connect with and collaborate with the CFO, with the COO, and have a C-suite level dialogue about where investments are made, why they are made, and how they connect with the mission. It changed the way we talk about our investments across the IT portfolio and the way in which we see those investments facilitate mission. Those would be the key deliveries of change that I've seen as a result of our FATARA work. And as we talked about earlier, part of this is getting the other communities involved. And once, as you talked about, if you went, if you go back through your three examples and you talked about software, all of a sudden the, the acquisition community got involved. When you talk about the, the risk piece, then all of a sudden you're getting not just the, the IT, but the budget side, the mission side involved. And when you talk about connecting the communities, the C-suite level dialogue, again, you're bringing everyone together to say, this is for all of us, not just for the CIO community or the IT community. And that, to me, seems, again, another, another for a lack of a better word, best practice that, that other agencies can follow. Because if, yeah, if it's looked as just a CIO tool or CIO initiative, that's when things probably don't go as well as they could. Absolutely. I think our CIOs would say as well that the FATARA initiative provided them with even broader entree into conversations than they had previously um, been able to participate in. Um, I think it allowed us as IT, as technologists, to anchor our commentary in financial conversations, in acquisition conversations, under the rubric of a law that basically says, let's make sure that across the C-suite, we are really managing our resources to meet mission in the most effective and efficient manner possible, and that we've got people in the right place with the right access, with the right security to do that exact job. It just created a forum for conversations because we had a multitude of disciplines in the room to start with. And I think it's a practice that has continued to aid HHS as we've tackled other types of projects going forward. Let's talk about going forward. What has happened since, obviously, that December hearing? And what does 2019 look like in terms of FATARA? How are you going to continue to make progress? It would be lovely if we could rest on our laurels, but quite candidly, there's a never-ending opportunity for us to continue to strengthen our existing practices. So we have engaged with uh, another model, which is now uh, we've kept the D3, Data Dialogue and Delivering Real Change, and we've added M3 to it, which is to monitor, maintain, and mature. So 
as we have achieved a number of key successes, uh, particularly under the rubric of the initial scorecard metrics, there is more work to be done. I mentioned earlier the importance of acknowledging and addressing legacy IT. Uh, we are, within my particular group, exploring how we can take this notion of enterprise architecture to pull together data across the portfolio that will help us better understand where we have legacy technology, particularly in the software realm, how we can know that that technology is getting ready to be unsupported or, or to sunset so that we can make investments and make financial decisions ahead of time so we're not caught off guard. We are leveraging Fatara as a way to help strengthen our cybersecurity awareness, um, whether it's through addressing legacy technology or leveraging, frankly, the scorecard itself to make sure folks are aware that cybersecurity is an opportunity for everyone to participate in. We equally understand through the monitor and maintain and mature that we have continued work to do to foster that collaboration. Uh, partnerships across the C-suite um, must be um, kind of like a plant watered and fertilized on a regular basis. You, you cannot let those partnerships wither. They must be maintained and they must be encouraged so that when the next big challenge comes, whatever it may be, you have the right people in the right place with the right data to have the right conversation. Amy, there's a lot to dig out there, but we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we can uh, maybe dig out on, on the M3 model and also to maybe talk about something else besides Fitara. My guest is Amy Hazeltine, the Deputy CIO for Enterprise Services at the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today, Amy Hazeltine, the Deputy CIO for Enterprise Services at the Department of Health and Human Services. Amy, we spent a big chunk of the show, really the most of the show, talking about FATARA, the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, and the progress HHS has been making and has made over the last uh, year and a half or so. Let's switch gears just a little bit. You, you, as the Deputy CIO for Enterprise Services, I'm sure you're working on other things besides uh, FATARA. So what else uh, is on your priority list? As much as we uh, thoroughly enjoy the challenge and opportunity that FATARA presents, you're absolutely right. We do have a few other things that are uh, in the bailiwick and on the, on the plans to uh, address and exercise. Um, I think the key thing that I've been focusing on within my own organization is how we can foster innovation, um, recognizing the importance of governance and oversight and compliance across the portfolio. One of the things we're focused on in my particular portfolio is how we take this notion of enterprise performance lifecycle activities, how we foster development and innovation, while at the same time ensuring that we've got the right guardrails and foundations, if you will, uh, to ensure that any new technologies that are brought into the department, that they have a foundational understanding of how we stand up projects, how we foster agile development, how we ensure that the infrastructure we have here on site can benefit and be sustained over time to take on that new technology or that new innovation. We're also trying to look at ways to leverage common platforms so that we can foster a greater degree of interoperability of our data. 
Um, again, if you think about the broader backdrop of Satara and the importance of being able to monitor the IT portfolio and ensure effectiveness and efficiency, it really requires a variety of different data streams uh, that have to kind of come together in a holistic method, understanding not just where that software inventory is and what types of software are on the brink of being unsupported, but understanding how many different new technologies and uh, new projects are in the queue to be developed, and are they taking advantage of the greatest technologies that are available. Understanding where we have uh, opportunities, whether through audits, uh, through GIO or the OIG, to strengthen our cybersecurity and our infrastructure, and bringing all those different data parts together in a holistic picture so that when we're doing project management and we're really overseeing projects across the portfolio, we're overseeing those in a holistic manner. I think the third thing we're working on is really to think about this notion of enterprise architecture from a consulting perspective, uh, recognizing that Enterprise architecture sometimes, um, and perhaps historically, is often characterized by wiring diagrams, when in fact enter enterprise architecture is really a discipline affiliated with understanding what your business is, talking through what your processes are as driven by policy, and then understanding how technology can lever be leveraged to help effectuate change and deliver real outcomes and mission results. And so those are three things that we're working on here at HHS, certainly from my vantage point. One of the ideas that you mentioned was this idea of understanding, setting some guardrails. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like it's part of this idea of let's get a handle on shadow IT, but not so much to the fact that we are controlling everything. We just want people to stay within the guardrails. So when they bring in a new technology, they can look at the software inventory and say, does that exist? Okay, it does. Can I borrow it from somebody else? Okay, it doesn't exist. Can I buy it or build it? And then if I build it or buy it, does it fit within these parameters? Is that part of the goal there? I think absolutely. Um, we had coined a phrase called get with it, um, meeting guiding and governing emerging technology. And we absolutely want to adopt that type of a, of a framework. Um, I think what guides me in my daily life uh, in this particular role is this notion of ensuring that my work and the work of my team and the work of my colleagues um, is relevant and resonates with folks who do not do technology on a day-to-day -day basis. It's making sure that the standard business practices, which, you know, frankly, to kind of bring it back to the origin of the conversation, are articulated in the FATARA legislation, that those business practices are not just executed by technologists, but they're just good business sense for anyone. Um, whether you're uh, standing up a new uh, type of technology, whether you're a business manager or you're a program manager, understanding where your resources are, understanding how they're deployed, making sure that your resources are up to date and there's no vulnerabilities affiliated with those, that's just good business practice. And I think our job, um, particularly as we take Fatara to the next level, particularly as we take on the monitor, maintain, and mature, is to mature this construct in a way that it makes sense for all kinds of people, not just the community affiliated with the CIOs. In many ways, you just summed up what Fatara is all about. Amy, uh, Excellent. Like this, I said, yep. not just a lot, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> there you go. Amy, this has just been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I know we could talk longer, but uh, we'll have to have you come back on the show in, in the near future. So first, let me thank my guest, Amy Hazeltine, the Deputy CIO for Enterprise Services at the Department of Health and Human Services. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time today. 
Thank you very much. I am very, very appreciative of the opportunity. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.